0: Amen. So last week um, we put the we put the uh, the fourfold method to use. Uh, remember the historical sense, the Christological sense, the moral sense, and then the end times eschatological sense. Um, if you were here on Sunday, I did that. That's what the whole message looked like. But um, what we did last Thursday was read the uh, the story of David and Goliath through um, the Apostolic method, right? And that is reading, uh, reading it as a story ultimately about Jesus Christ. And the point that I've been trying to make throughout this class is that that is really the key to all interpretation. Uh, historical context, literally, literary, literary structure, excuse me, syntax, and all that good stuff are important, uh, but they're secondary to Christ because all meaning and edification. In the scriptures are derived from him, right? So take as an example of this the Pharisees, right, who were masters of the scripture, uh, far beyond what anybody could boast today, yet they didn't read the scriptures um, according to Christ, or uh, they read them apart from Christ. So in that argument in John chapter 5, Jesus accuses them, right? He says, you diligently search the scriptures Because you think that in them you have eternal life, right? And then he adds, but on the contrary, it is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. So, in other words, uh, I think what Jesus is saying is that there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about searching the scriptures if one fails to discern uh, their true content and purpose. right? Jesus is uh, eternal life. And the scriptures derive that from him. So he says, you search the scriptures, but it's these that testify of me. So Christ is eternal life, and the scriptures derive that from him. So let's kind of put some flesh on that in this introduction, and we'll get to the meat of what we're doing today. This comes from Hans Borsema, someone I've really learned a lot from over the course of this class. Um, Actually, I want to go to seminary, and he's one of the teachers at the seminary that I want to go to, or online go to. it says He says, Though historical types may chronologically foreshadow Christ, ontologically, that's a big word, but I'll explain it in a minute, they follow him and are patterned on him. No matter where we are in salvation history, Christ is always the arche. What does that mean? The origin and principle. The historical unfolding of Adamic and Israelite history is but the shadow of the reality that is God in Christ. It's like we said, what he's saying there is a bit wordy, but the idea is really quite simple, and it goes something like this. Though Christ comes later in the story, right? He, he doesn't come till the very end of the Old Testament history. Uh, though he comes later in the story, the story is, nevertheless, patterned on him. So, he comes second chronologically, but he is first in priority. So, We'll come to this scripture in just a few moments, but think of the apostle's words in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, where he says that Adam is a type of Christ who was to come, right? So, so we have Christ chronologically second to Adam, but Adam is a type of Christ, right? So Christ comes first in priority. So whether it be Adam or Moses or David, uh, those figures are types of Christ and not the other way around, right? Christ is not a type of Adam. He's not a type of Moses. He's not a type of David. Those figures are types of Christ. So the point is Christ doesn't conform to pre- a pre-existing pattern. He is the pattern, right? And so those such figures uh, live exemplar- lived exemplary lives, and there's a lot to learn from them, right? A little bit like we talked about with David last week. There's a whole lot we can draw from that story just on a literal level, um, However, whatever meaning they have, right, whatever significance David or Moses or whoever has for us, it's derived from Christ. And that's why we never want to treat them in isolation. So we could reuse Jesus' phrase, it is these, Adam, Moses, David, so on and so forth, that testify about me. So their lives uh, and the happenings around them are signs that point us toward the reality who is Christ. Or as the apostle says in Colossians, right? You guys remember that wonderful passage where he says that uh, speaking of the former things, he says they are a mere shadow of what's to come, right? You can imagine Christ on the horizon casting his shadow, and that shadow is the old covenant dispensation. And he says, but the substance belongs to Christ, right? So the substance belongs to Christ. And This will prompt someone like Tim Keller, um, his book on preaching, another really valuable resource. He says, if we ever tell a particular Bible story without putting it into the Bible story about Christ, which some people call uh, the canonical reading of Scripture, putting it within the larger canon, we actually change its meaning for us. It becomes a moralistic exhortation to try harder rather than a call to live by faith in the work of Christ. There are, in the end, two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about me or basically about Jesus? And that comes from Keller's, uh, his section in his book on preaching about preaching Christ from the Old Testament, right? Landing and ending with him. So, of course, to his question, we want to answer the latter. It's about Christ, and it's about him crucified. So, we can start with David but we don't want to end with David or simply remain with David. Our, scripture is not comp- our interpretation of Scripture, rather, is not complete until we've moved from the shadow to the substance, from the sign to the reality, from the type to the archetype. Because Christ is the substance, and everything else are mere shadows, right? They lead us to Christ. They're signs that point us to him. So the ability then, and here's where we'll wrap things up and jump off into what we're going to do today— The ability to identify him in the Old Testament scriptures um, is central to the interpretive task, right? It's these that testify about me. Now, we can disagree about the extent to how far we can find him, right? Or I might want to push the boundaries a little bit and someone else might want to hold back. But we all agree uh, the scriptures are about Christ. So what I want to do with this one is to introduce you to the way the New Testament identifies Christ in the Old Testament. And really, it's it's not so difficult. It's a matter of familiarizing ourselves with the history of Jesus. So if we can know very clearly the the, the contours and the steps of Jesus' life, um, we can go back to Scripture and know what to look for, right? So the more we understand his story, the easier it is to see it present in the Old Testament. Um, So we know the archetype, then we can know the types that come before, the shadows that come before. So a lot like last week, what we're going to do this week is leave theory behind, and we're going to get right to it. Now, what I'm going to do here is point out, and I've got the main ones there on the paper, I'm going to point out some types that are present in the Old Testament, but I want to show... My homework along the way. Again, because it's not some fancy way of reading, it's just kind of following the patterns, right? Following the contours that are set there for us. And I think it's pretty intuitive. So once you know what to look for, um, you'll find Christ, I think, virtually everywhere in the Old Testament. So that's it for the introduction. Any questions before we move on to Adam and Eve about uh, what we just talked about there? A little bit of a rehash. Yeah. Okay. forgot to ask about homework. We'll get to that at the end. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, as we've already noted, right, talking about Adam, the Adam to Christ, Christ to Adam typology is already quite explicit in the New Testament, right? And the most obvious place is in the writing of the Apostle Paul. So he writes in his epistle to the Romans, uh, I've already read this a little bit, chapter 5, verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam, in other words, prefigures Christ. Remember the Greek word there, tupos, right? Uh, We talked about it being an image or a mold or a pattern of the real thing. And more specifically, what we find in Adam as a type um, is an inverse type. And if you follow the reading of Romans chapter 5, it's pretty clear how the Apostle Paul develops this. Adam, in his disobedience, brought ruin upon the human race, and Jesus, in his obedience, brings restoration. Right and, and there's this back and forth between the obedience of the one man and the disobedience of the other. What the one man brought upon the human race and what the other man brought upon the human race. And so together, and a very rich reading of Romans 5, Jesus and Adam represent the creation and the recreation of humanity as its respective heads, right? There's that one head, Adam, from who follows all this terrible history of mankind. And then there's another head, Jesus Christ, from whom uh, grace is given on top of grace. It abounds over sin and death, so on and so forth. And if you follow the argument then from chapter 5 to chapter 6, to be saved, right, one needs to be baptized by virtue of the Spirit um, out of Adam's corrupted human race into Christ's holy race through baptism, right? Right? And and again, the the context there is pretty specific. From Romans 5 to Romans 6, we're leaving one human race, one father of the human race, Adam, to another in Christ. So a a fairly straightforward one, and we just want to use these as jumping patterns. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle makes a very similar typological connection by referring to Christ, this time as the last Adam, Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So again, one Adam to the next. In creation, uh, we have borne the image of Adam, the earthly man. And in our new creation, we'll bear the image of Christ, the heavenly man. So, the perishable, dishonorable, and weak, soulish body that we have from Adam, right? Notice the first part of the verse there. Adam became a life, or became a living soul, the soulish part of it, and these bodies will be raised to the likeness of Christ's imperishable, glorious, and powerful spiritual body. Notice the second half of the verse, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So, our bodies... Were conformed to the image of Adam; they were bodies, soulish bodies, right—a living soul. And in the resurrection, they'll be according to Christ's body, a life-giving spirit. So those are really obvious, right? And and, and in fact, they're very uh, they're very uh, um, meaningful, but they're obvious. And they are a more subtle typology uh, Christ to Adam that the New Testament does. Um, in the temptation narratives, which we find in all four go- or rather all three synoptic gospels, we have another inverse Christ to Adam, Adam to Christ typology. So if you kind of put the temptation in the garden here and then you put Christ's temptation in the wilderness here, you'll see how they map on, but again in an inverse manner. Um, Adam was tempted in the garden, right? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness the very opposite of a garden. The serpent came veiled to Adam, but manifest to Christ. Um, Adam had every good thing to eat in the garden, everything he could have wanted. Christ, on the other hand, fasted. He was hungry. And both, quite obviously, were faced with the same temptation, which was to take and eat, right? Take, make the stone into a piece of bread and eat. And you have, again, that inverse, Christ to um, Adam, Adam to Christ typology, where one failed and took and ate and disobeyed God. We'll come back to this, actually, um, when we get to the Exodus, um, and the other triumphed, right? He, he, he didn't take and eat. Um, and again, I think, I'm not sure which comes first, if it's the Gospels come before Paul's writings in Romans and 1 Corinthians, we don't really, can't say for sure. Um, but there's a, a clear relationship there between what Paul says and what the gospel authors say. And in Jesus' baptism and subsequent genealogy in the gospel of Luke, we find another really deft typological connection. So, the gospel of Luke, Jesus is baptized, and do you guys remember what... Uh, God the Father says to Jesus from heaven, right? You are my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. So he identifies Jesus, right? You're my beloved son. And then from there, uh, the Gospel of Luke cuts straight away to a genealogy. So in the Gospel of Matthew, it goes baptism straight into the wilderness. Gospel of Mark, baptism straight into the wilderness. In um, the Gospel of Luke, it goes baptism, genealogy, then wilderness, And by interrupting uh, this action, uh, what Luke does is trace Jesus' lineage from uh, Joseph, his supposed father, all the way back to Adam, right? He goes all the way to the beginning of history um, to Adam, whom he calls the Son of God, right? So the action is bookended. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We break scene. Luke gives us the genealogy, the title scroll on the screen, and he goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. So again, he's saying the very same thing that Paul is saying, just in a different way. The human race begins with the earthly son of God, Adam, right? The first uh, man. And it begins again, the human race does, with the last Adam, the heavenly son of God, Jesus Christ. So as we bore the image of one, we're going to bear the image of the other, or we do currently bear that image. And then after that comes the temptation narrative. So you see, just not even on the surface, but just in the way the story is told, this foreshadowing, this pointing to further elements of the Bible. A good way to explain it is, if you guys have been on like really any website, but think of like Wikipedia, there's hyperlinks, right? So you'll read over a subject, and it'll have a definition, it'll have another uh, you know, uh, page that's attached to it, and it's got that little, uh, that little. It's blue with underline, and you could click on that, and that takes you somewhere else. It's kind of a lot like what the New Testament is doing, where you're reading all these stories, and one connects you here, the other connects there, and it's all interwoven into this dense back and forth conversation. So, a little bit of what I would like you to see here is that this typology that the apostles are doing is not a take it or leave it garnish. In fact, it's foundational to how they understand salvation history and how they explain it to us. Adam, Christ, and the different ways of going about that typology. There's more to say. Um, Other instances where Christ is likened to Adam, Adam is likened to Christ. Um, But I want to build on what we've learned, and so let me just ask a question. Since Adam is a type of Christ, then Eve is what? A type of Anyone tie? Church, Church, right? Really easy. Eve is a type of the church. You guys know this. Ephesians chapter 5. The apostle Paul cites the Genesis 2 passage after the creation of Eve. And he, he cites, and the two, and they shall become one flesh, Adam and Eve. And then he says, our passage here, verse 32, this is a great mystery. Um, We're thinking Adam and Eve, and just marriage in general, but he says, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church, right? So somewhere along the lines, that Adam to Christ typology was revealed to the disciples, and the connections then from there on are pretty easy to make. Uh, He understands, the apostle Paul does, the words of Genesis to refer, uh, I think more properly, to Christ in the church than to Adam and Eve. So let's go back to this uh, idea of shadow and reality, right? Um, Human marriage, as it was first instituted in the garden, is the shadow. The reality is Christ in the church. So one points to the other, one looks to the other, and that's what the apostles see. So the mystery and I like that word that he uses there, uh, the mystery, and that's what the church fathers would often call typology. They would just say the mystery of Christ being foreshown in the Old Testament, the mystery hidden in the creation narrative, um, one that's been obscured from our view for a long time until Christ came is the one that tells about Christ and the church. So look at how someone very, fairly early on, Tertullian, kind of does this typology. He says, if Adam was a type of Christ, Adam's sleep was a type of the death of Christ, who slept in death. Eve, coming from Adam's side, is a type of the church, the mother of all living, as Eve is named later on in the story. So he takes the connection that is made in Ephesians 5, and then he goes back, and then he looks at the details, and he says, oh yeah, before Adam was given his bride, God put him to sleep, cut him open. Opened it, took out the rib, and the text says, Built a woman, built him Eve. So I think it's not too much of a stretch, especially when we consider um, a very interesting detail that the Apostle John is really keen to highlight in his telling of Jesus' crucifixion. Um, none of the other uh, Gospels record it, but John really wants us to see this thing. And notice the words he uses. He says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And then he says this, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. So he says, one, he's testifying, his testimony is true. And then, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may also believe. Three times, he's like, I seen it, I really did see it, I promise I seen it, and I'm telling the truth, so believe me, right? And as Adam, right, we can just draw the connection, was put to sleep, And was cut open from his side, right, specific his side, and the rib was removed and Eve was made. Jesus was also put to sleep, so to speak, right? And that's a very common metaphor in the scriptures. He also had his side cut open, pierced with the spear, and out came blood and water. Now, again, that's an important detail because the apostle says, I saw it. Look, I'm telling you the truth. Commentators, however, disagree on what the actual significance of the water and the blood mean that came from Christ's side, but virtually all commentators, and I tried to canvass a broad spectrum here, they're all fair, in fair agreement that it does refer to the church in some way. Um, so what you'd find in the church fathers is that they would say the blood refers to the Lord's Supper, the water refers to baptism, right, the sacraments of the church, And okay, maybe you want to go with that, maybe you don't. Others see, and I don't know, maybe this reading feels a little bit better. Others see the blood as obviously referring to the cleansing of Christ's blood, right, Uh, which washes away our sin, Um, and the water as referring to the Spirit, right? So think in uh, John chapter 7 where Jesus stands up on, uh, I forget what feast it is, but he says, all who come to me, um, basically they'll have living water, and it'll be pouring forth from their lives and their souls and then John adds a little note that he was speaking of the Spirit, right? And, of course, the Spirit's often associated with uh, water uh, and the washing of water. So however we want to go with it, I think the point is rather clear, right? Those are for the church. Those are for us who believe in Christ. Um, so it takes us back to the creation of the church. So let me read this, and then I'll open things up here for a little bit of discussion. It's from Peter Lighthart. He's doing typology, but with a lot of different elements here. It says, speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the new Adam, birthing the church, the new Eve from his side. He is the new Eden, which flowed with four uh, rivers to the four points of the compass. He is the rock in the wilderness, which gave water when struck to save the lives of Israel in the wilderness. He is the new glorified temple of Ezekiel, which flowed water, uh, flowed the water, I don't know, I didn't do that right, which flowed water, the renewed and renewed the ground, whatever. Questions before we move on? I want to mention a few other things, but not as important to this Adam-Eve typology. What do you guys think about about what's being done there? How does that feel? Is it pretty natural? Is it strange? Was it something you would ever do? I just want to open things up and get some thoughts. Tom? Tom? Right. Some of the other things I'm still. Anybody feel similar to that or different? Dad? Well, I think, you know, if, if they're showing the pattern, I think
1: it's the whole way you would read the Old Testament.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not just going to be, why would it just be this portion and this portion, but not everything else? Not the details in between. Yeah. I
1: think yeah. it's through the whole Old, the Old Testament
0: is how you would read. Yes. Right? Okay, yeah, so we've got two views on the spectrum here. So someone like Tertullian, right, was obviously going to go, okay, we see the two connections, and then he'll read in between the lines and see to see if he can make other typological connections. So that that was fairly common among the church fathers. But today, remember when we went through the, uh, the history of interpretation? Today you'll find people, I mean, you can't argue with the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament, so obviously that's legit, but they want to re- just say, let's not go beyond those bounds, right? So let's kind of, because of the reason Tom said, right, it could feel, well, I don't know if that's legit or not. So someone, a lot of good commentators that I really uh, in, enjoy, they'll take that view. Um, I find myself on the other side. What, what about you guys? Where do you find yourself on the two sides of the spectrum? Mike? Uh, well, I, I certainly agree with uh, you know, Adam Yeah. Mm. I have First uh, John, First John 5. It comes up again. Uh, let's see if I can find it here without wasting too much time. This is the one who came by water and the blood, First John 5, 6, not with water only, but with water and with blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, I don't know what it means, Oh, Mike, come on. That's too close. They're, I mean, same author, same thing. <laughs> I think you need to go a little further on that one. Um, okay, what about you guys? Where do you find yourselves? Uh, Laurel. Okay, so I'd like to go the first uh, Uh-huh. That's Psalm sixty nine, maybe. Anyway, and another sister says, They will
1: look on the one they have So, when I read this, I see that this is a sign, just like
0: John said, This I'm going to tell you about signs. Yes. Right? I mean, that's what he said
1: he was going to be doing in his book. And so, this is a sign. That
0: yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm in total agreement with that. that. Sure. And I I mean, I think most people are willing to go and say, yeah, I'll go with what the, the typologies that are identified. I think there's a whole lot of value in going further. And I don't think what we said about the water and the blood, I mean, I think that's clearly identified by what John says in 1 John 5, that there is some significance to that, however we might understand it. So, uh, yeah, I just, my thought is that the New Testament are not identifying all of them and saying, okay, these are the only ones, and stick to these. I think it's showing us how to read and giving us the key to say, okay, now go and do likewise, read in the same manner. Any questions on these kind of things? Add to the discussion? Tyler, did you have anything to say? You were kind of... Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 my thought. And again, I'm not it's up to the did you have something, honey? Nothing to add, I just agree with the, the as an art history major sure. I think
1: symbols are especially blood and water, like very obvious important themes in throughout the whole Bible. Yes.
0: Right. Cheese isn't a common theme in the Old Testament, yeah, right. But blood and water are. The rock, like, yeah, the rock that pours forth water. Like kind of right. Like, like the the you know, like kind of yeah, yeah. So we'll go Tom and then we'll come to you, Laurel. I, the, the part in, uh, first genre, yeah. No, 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 no. Okay, so now I know that there are certain certain mysteries, certain things that will not be revealed until the latter time. Sure. Are you thinking those are those things, or we just need to figure it out? Or? No, no, no. I, I would say I don't know what it means because I've never really studied that passage in any depth. Now, I'm very fairly certain that what John is referring to in 1 John 5 is what happened on the cross. I mean, it seems... It seems hard to read it any other way. What other water, what other blood would he be testifying to and and making his point? I'll get to you in just a moment, Laurel, Um, uh, because there are no other significant areas of water and blood that seem to matter. So what I would say in answer to that is that when there are these sort of mysteries, the Lord's drawn us deeper. He wants to reveal something more. I mean, and I, I don't think the Scripture is... Always meant to be plain. I think there are supposed to be these sort of confounding elements that are there for a reason. Go deeper, learn more, explore, and dive into it. And I don't think that's for just the average or the seminary educated, but for everybody. Laurel? Okay, well, I can think of a possibility. Sure. I can think of possibility. It's because remember, one of the significant things that happened was when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Yes. Sure. That was a significant thing. That was water.
1: And he came, this was like almost sort of the
0: beginning of his ministry, you might say. Yes. That was a significant event. That was water. Massive. Okay, then he died. Yes. the cross, of course, blood was shed. Yes. Another very tremendously
1: significant event. So to me, I didn't see where you could find water and blood in those two events
0: that could maybe fit this. I mean, I don't know. So. Yeah. I mean, I would just want to draw them all in. I mean, kind of like Aaron was saying, there's a common thread in the water, in the blood, that culminate in Christ. So I would be comfortable with bringing them all in. I mean, and I think there's clearly a way to reconcile all those that they're not contradictory in nature. Okay, all right. So let's keep the ball rolling here, because we're going to get to some other ones. So, um From Adam and Eve, right, we could go on to do the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, if you guys were part of uh, the earlier Genesis class, um, the Garden of Eden is is clearly depicted as a temple based on a later reading of how the temple is presented, right? The, The two go hand in hand, and of course, what does it do? it culminates in the new Jerusalem, right, where there's the tree of life, there's the river that runs through it, it takes us all the way back to the garden. So there's that typological theme that runs all the way through. Um, I think the tree of life um, and connecting that to the cross of Christ in Galatians chapter 3 is another one. Certainly the garment of skins that are used to cover Adam and Eve are a type of Christ's righteousness of covering, right, to come later in the Bible, which the Old Testament sacrifices prefigured, which that was also looking forward to. One of my favorite ones I just discovered uh, is Cain and Abel. I'd never realized that the New Testament likens Christ to Abel, right, where it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, that uh, Christ's blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood, right? And when you look at the details of the story, Oh, my goodness, it makes so much sense, right? The first martyr who's killed by his brother um, and his blood speaks from the ground. Um, And how John uses that, again, in 1 John, where there's this back and forth between those who are of Cain and those who are of Abel. The apostles are doing all kinds of interesting things with that story right there and relating it to Christ and then also relating it to the church, the first, uh, the the one brother who murders the other, Jesus being murdered by his own countrymen, so on and so forth. But um, and then you could go to Seth, you could go to uh, Enoch, who walked with God but was taken because he was pleasing, so on and so forth. But I want to move now to the next uh, major typology in the scriptures, and that is Noah and the flood. So what we want to do first is consider the typological meaning of Noah as an individual. So in his uh, sermons on Ezekiel, Origen, he recalls a Midrash. That's a Jewish commentary on the figure of Noah. So this is an Origen's view. He's saying, I picked this up when I was talking to a Jew one day. So he said, I heard a Jew explain this passage by saying, see Noah before the flood when the world was still intact. See him in the destruction of the world saved in the ark. See him coming out after the flood, becoming as it were the creator of a new world. So it's very simple, right? Um, Noah, in other words, is a hinge figure, right? He's a man in between the old world and the new world. He's the remnant of the old and the beginning of the new. And I think Philo here, is, or uh, Origin, is probably following Philo, another very uh, influential uh, interpreter of the scriptures he was actually a contemporary of Jesus and the apostles, he says, God has judged Noah worthy to be the beginning and the end of our race, end of all things before the flood, beginning of all things that follows, right? So, Noah sums up one world, he's considered uh, righteous in God's eyes, and he's given grace, and then he, through the flood and the ark, ushers in a new world, right? A, a new human world with his family. So in that sense, um, and if we're just reading, we're not talking about Christ just yet, we're just reading the story of Genesis as it's read up into the point of Noah, he's clearly, Noah is a messianic type, right? He's 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 a new Adam, so to speak. Um, Noah's name, it sounds like the Hebrew word for rest, right? There's a pun, commentators will tell you. Its name sounds; it's almost the exact same word for Hebrew uh, uh, rest. And when his father Lamech named him, this is Genesis chapter five twenty nine. He says, "This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands from the ground which the Lord has cursed." So Noah was born, and his father says he's going to give us rest. And what is he giving him rest from? Um, the curse, the curse upon the ground. So clearly. That's a, that's a statement there, a verse that's loaded with messianic expectations, right? Um, he's going to deliver us. He's going to give us rest from the curse. And then, of course, after the flood, um, what promise or what commission is repeated to Noah? He gets off. He steps off Mount Ararat. They make sacrifice. The Lord comes to him, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, right? Those were the same words that were given to Adam and Eve, so the human race is restarted, and Noah is something of a new Adam, right? He's God's beginning again with Noah this time. So Noah is, is, uh, is Adam 2.0, and therefore, quite obviously, as a, as a new Adam, um, he's, a, he's a type of Christ. He looks forward to Christ as well, um, and we'll get to how the New Testament does this in just a moment. But Christ is, if we just take what we learned about Noah in a manner that far outdoes Noah, he is the hinge point between the end of the old age and the beginning of the new age. So he's the last Adam that we talked about, remember? And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So, of course, Christ is this, he's, he sums up everything that had come before and then he begins something new in his resurrection. So, uh, a new order, right? A new creation comes into existence after the flood of divine judgment has swept over human sin in the cross. And, of course, the rest that Noah could not deliver, right? It was all this expectation placed on him that he wasn't able to fulfill. Jesus does. Jesus is our rest, right? So though I don't, can't point to a proof text and say, look, see how it says Noah here, I don't think I need to because it's dispelled by other typological connections that the Apostle Peter makes. So listen to what he says here, speaking about the flood. The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot going on there, and uh, hotly contested territory um, that's made for little disagreement as it relates to baptism there, but we can pass by all that. Our only aim here is to highlight uh, the connection that the Apostle Peter makes between the flood on the one hand and Christian baptism on the other. So those who entered the ark, they were saved through the waters that brought an end to the ancient world. And he says this corresponds to baptism. Um, However, we understand what he means by when he says that now saves you. Um, We think baptism as it relates to the Spirit. So anyway, those who are united to Christ through baptism are saved by water, so to speak. And the old is drowned and the new life is given through uh, the resurrection, right? Uh, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as he says there in the end. So baptism... Uh, is like the flood. The flood is like baptism. And so this typology, right, it's of a very ancient pedigree. Justin Martyr, he's about only one generation removed from the apostles. He writes in his dialogues, now Christ, the firstborn of every creature, is become the head of a new race, which has been regenerated by him through water, faith, and wood, which embraces the mystery of the cross, as Noah, together with his family, was saved by the wood of the ark, carried on the waters. So um, let me say one more thing and then we can talk. So we can push these typo- typological associations still further. Um, again, if Noah, uh, if Christ is Noah, if that's the typological association, then the ark must be, once again, what? Uh, his body, the church, right? We are baptized. What are we baptized into? The, the body of Christ. We're baptized into Christ, and only by being in Christ are we saved, right? There's no salvation outside of Christ. There's no salvation um, without being united to him. Uh, in the same way, right, they get in the ark, there's no salvation outside the ark. Other than that, you're, you're done so. So Christ head and body is the ark that shelters humanity from the coming judgment. Of course, it's not the church that saves, right? That's not what we're saying. But that the church is the company of the redeemed. It's the company of those who are saved. So you can't be, you can't be spared from the judgment to come. We'll get to that uh, actually right now. You can't be spared from that judgment without being in the ark, so to speak, who is Christ. So we mentioned that judgment. So look at also what the scriptures do with that. This is 2 Peter now. It says, the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of godly, ungodly men. So one judgment, the ancient watery judgment, prefigures another judgment, the future and fiery judgment. And of course, as Jesus says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. The flood um, prefigures the salvation of the righteous and the destruction of the unrighteous, um, first on the cross and what Jesus does, and then again at the end of time when he comes in his, his second coming. Only those in Christ who have entered the ark, right, so to speak, shall be delivered. We will be saved, the apostle Paul says, yet as through fire, while that same fire will consume the others. So there's a watery judgment Saved in the ark, fiery judgment, saved in Christ. Um, let's see. Okay, let me open things up now. How do you, what about this uh, Noahic uh, flood typology? That's one of my favorite ones in the scripture. I love the, the hinge of old to new in Christ. Any questions? More straightforward or less? Dan?
1: Mm-hmm. Why would he say that for a stroke of a letter to the smallest letter that all would be fulfilled? You know, there's there's so much more in there that we got no idea. Of. And I think by doing this we unlock some of that out. Will we ever know it all? No, not until the Lord, you know, reveals everything to us. Yeah. But why would you have that saying in there if there if there's not meaning behind? Did he, just, did he just throw that in there to make it sound cute? Or is it really mm-hmm. something to it? Mm-hmm. If, if it's all the way down to the little stroke that has to be fulfilled. There's so much more in there. Like I said about the genealogies last time, right? If, if that's just in the genealogies, Jesus Christ in, in his resurrection, if, not to read the Bible that way, it, it, I don't know how you can't. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I don't understand um, what's wrong of not looking for that in the Old Testament. Because if you do find something and you can, and you can relate it, I, I think it just makes you, makes you grow. You know, mm-hmm. it, I'm not, it's, not everybody's going to do it. Not everybody's going to find it, something in there. Mm-hmm. it's a good thing if you can look through the Old Testament and compare it to Jesus
0: and find it in there. Because, like I said before, I think you every sentence, every letter that's in there. Yeah. Yeah, so, and and I guess you could, to, to, uh, to affirm, I think, a, a version of that that people would be comfortable with is like a form of, typological, allegorical reading that doesn't disregard the literal sense, right? So if it's like if we're still treating the literal sense and, and then getting to Christ, I think that's absolutely within bounds. But to kind of uh, to do something else is where there would be trouble. But again, I, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with what you had said there. Um, I think it's all there, and I think we're all the better for finding it and for relating things back to Christ because he's ultimately the goal. Any questions about uh, Jeannie? So, um, yes. A bit, yes. Uh, but it, it seems to me that the story could be interpreted that Christ is represented by the Yes. Sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I have that interpretation And then there's this other interpretation Of the art of the church And it's like well which interpretation is right Can they both be right at the same time And then it
0: starts to kind of feel a little like You can just make it whatever you want to make it. That's sure, sure Yeah so okay go ahead Bob Yes. The dead, so we the so yes. If you take the ark as the coffin, if you will, yeah. uh, we were, are the old flesh? Yes. Was buried in the coffin, and we emerged on the other side and walked into the supply. Yes. And she had water, water could be judgment or destruction. Yeah. Okay, so let me say two things, right, to, to what was being said there. Is the So there's there's one element that you mentioned, Jeannie, of the arbitrariness, right, where, where, okay, well, I think it could prefigure this, or I think it could prefigure that, and then you kind of get some weirdness. Now, I would just say you do, that happens all over the Scripture. If we're reading a plain reading, right, in, let's say men's Bible study, we don't even agree about that. We all come from a different direction. So I think you're going to run into that whatever you do. Um, but the other element is I don't think it's meant to be uh, hard and fast. This is equated with this. This means it can only mean this, right? Nobody said anything untrue there, right? And what's being done is you're drawing out meaning as it pertains to the Christian life. Like the story of the flood, for us, unless we're going to pull out some principles, it doesn't really mean anything to us until it's related to the realities of the Christian life. And so... However you get there, as long as it's not, like, blatantly false, I'm fine with that. And and I think the scriptures are fine with that. And also, like, I would just say Christ and the church, I, I don't want to make a distinction there between the head and the body, because that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12, right, where he just basically says, as we're made up of many members, he says, so is Christ. Christ is the head plus the body. That's the whole Christ. So um, I wouldn't want to say that the church specifically to the to, uh, exclusion of Christ, because then you get into some weird things that you'd be affirming there. But I would just say, yeah, Christ as he is, united with his body uh, in, in baptism. So, yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's necessary to, to say it has to be this, um, as long as you've got the general contours of the, of the story, right, which I think we all do. Any questions on that one, uh, Tom? Well, when I put this together, I was like, I think Tom's probably going to mention something about the Catholic Church, Mother Church, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just. You know the quote and Sure. Right on top of each other. You
1: come
0: up with baptism Well, I just want to go back, right? corresponding to baptism, which now saves you. So I don't have a problem saying that. You have to qualify it. But I don't have a problem. That's what the Scripture says. So I'm okay with going for that. And that's why I mentioned the Holy Spirit, right? Not that baptism is, uh, is uh, you know, some magical thing that, you know, saves you. It's the work of the Spirit, um, who's the author of baptism, Who who is the one who truly unites us to Christ. Um, and then the stuff about, you know, the the... I agree with you about the weirdness of like, some of the church stuff of Mother Church, like you can't be saved outside of the Catholic communion like that, where it gets taken to the nth degree, and you do find them using this passage in that sort of context. I mean, I would just want to butt that up against other New Testament passages that you know clearly teach contrary. So he said, uh, water, wood, uh, where is it? Yeah, water, faith, and wood. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it just depends on how you understand it. So, I, what did what did Justin Martyr actually believe about baptism? Because I don't think he's saying there anything different than what we found in Second Peter. Baptism saves you. Here, he's just saying, right, we're saved. He actually <laughs> hedges a little bit. He says, "Would faith and water." Go ahead, Bob. God for a good so, again, I would agree with that. I'll get to you, honey. Uh, I'll, I agree with that, totally. Um, but he just still says baptism saves you. So, again, I have no problem saying those words because the Scripture says them. And if the Scripture says it, then... We shouldn't be afraid to say it. So, um, yeah, I would just want to qualify what that means. And what does Justin Martyr actually mean? I mean, is that a doctrinal statement on baptism? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think trying to. But again, Tom, that can be done with anything. I mean, it's just the nature of and a quote pulled from its context, honey. Yeah. rather than going more if I were to read that I'd say oh that's what you say I guess that's how it is. but when you said before you're talking about water and the spirit being within water yes and then talking about the blood and it cleansing you and the spirit cleansing your conscience and your tights it there you go the spirit is like baptism by the spirit a woman after my own heart absolutely because uh okay. She just knows what she's talking about. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Right? So, again, that's why, I mean, I don't want to get sucked into the baptism thing because we can go back and forth, um, and regardless of what Justin Martyr means, um, you could take it. There's a Protestant reading of that, and then there's, of course, a uh, a more particular Catholic one. But Yeah, that's not unique here. That's all over the place. So um, anyway, then we could keep moving, right? I want to get to the next one, which is another really cool one. Um, but the, the justification of Abraham is uh, a type of our justification in Christ. The promised land, which points to our inheritance. Read Romans chapter 4. Uh, Melchizedek, the priest king who offers to Abraham, uh, what does he give him? Wine and bread. Bread. I mean, if that ain't Jesus Christ, I don't know what is. Uh, Hagar and Sarah, who stand for the two covenants, Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul there, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we've already talked about that one in one of my past sermons, um, and still many others, right? And when you see how many of the New Testament authors identify, um, you've already got most of Genesis right there. And then um, we move now to Isaac, um, and two things about Isaac, his birth. And then, when he 's sacrificed, and this is oh, it's so good, so Isaac, even before Christ had come along, um, he had already begun to to have unique figural significance in Jewish literature apart from christ um, so Philo, whom we 've already consulted, he interprets the birth of Isaac as a divine one right um, it, it it's from above it 's a supernatural birth, and so Um, listen to what he says. He said, God is the author of laughter. That's Isaac's name, remember? That's what it means. And joy. So that we must not think of Isaac as of normal birth, but as the offspring of the unbegotten, right? The offspring of God. If Isaac means laughter, it is God who causes the laughter according to the trustworthy testimony of Sarah. And he ought then logically to be called the father of Isaac. So remember the, the, the context, right? Abraham, is an old, old man, well past the age of childbearing. Sarah's womb, for all of her life, had been barren. She couldn't have children, and so what Philo is saying is that when Isaac is finally born, he's like, "It's better to speak of Isaac as the the son of God rather than the child of uh, of, uh, of 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 uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah." And in fact, in another place, I. I I couldn't, couldn't find the exact quote, but I found it in one of the other books that I read. He called the birth of Isaac a, virgin, a virginal birth. Uh, the birth of, again, a virgin birth. Kind of going in that direction. Now, Christ, there's no interaction these, between these two as far as we know. So, Abraham and Sarah, being far beyond the age of natural childbearing, Isaac's birth is from above, right? It's a heavenly birth, not by human agency but by the Spirit of God. And that much is clear um, from the reading of Scripture. And I think just in that quote, and then Isaac calling, or in Philo calling the birth of Isaac virginal, it's pretty wild to me how close he's getting to the truth without knowing it, right? Cutting an outline of Christ without understanding. So remember Abraham, he had two sons, Ishmael first, right, according to the flesh, um, and then Isaac according to the Spirit. So remember, Abraham was despairing because he couldn't have a child. And so he grasped at the promise. And him and Sarah, mainly Sarah, concocted a plan for him to take Hagar and have a child with her. Um, And they had this son who was conceived apart from the promise of God. And then immediately after that, God institutes circumcision, right? And he says, Abraham, you're trusting in yourself um, that you can do this on your own. So he says, go ahead and give it a snip, Stop trusting in your power to fulfill my promises and trust in me, right? That's the point of circumcision, right? You're not trusting in the flesh anymore. It's being cut away, and you're putting your trust in God. So Abraham now, he's not a fleshly man any longer, right? He, he's gone through, um, and in fact, uh, circumcision is a type of baptism. Colossians chapter 2, read that one. Um, but he's no longer a fleshly man. And now, after circumcision, the promise is repeated to him. God visits Abraham and says, Your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And Isaac, the apostle Paul tells us, this is Galatians chapter 4, is a child of promise born according to the Spirit, right? He's born according to the Spirit. So Isaac, in his birth, um, anticipates Christ, the true child of promise. Not metaphorically, But quite literally, born according to the Spirit. Look at what uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 35 says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the child shall be called the Son of God. Literally, of the Holy Spirit, right? So what was shadowed forth in Isaac is fulfilled in Christ. So Isaac is from above, in a sense, right? We're, We're speaking metaphorically here. Yet according to an earthly manner, right? He still has a human father and a human mother. Isaac is far outdone um, by Jesus, who's born from above, yet not through man, but apart from man in the Spirit. He's truly the Son of God, um, and he prefigures Christ. Now, the reason I say this is because the Apostle Paul says that Isaac also prefigures us, who are in Christ. Listen is what he says in his uh, extended allegory at the end of Galatians 4, verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is also now. So as Ishmael used to persecute Isaac, he says, so it's now. The Jewish people, the Judaizers, still persecute the church, flesh and spirit. He says, but what does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. So clearly, Paul's reading that story, and he's taking the flesh and spirit, and he's relating them to the old covenant and the new covenant. So Christ is born, as Isaac is, according to the promise and by the Spirit, and so are we, right? We are born according to the promise of God, according to the Spirit of God. Uh, not according to the fleshly covenant, but the spiritual one inaugurated in Christ, who's, who's our Isaac, right? Who's our elder brother. And as it was then, so it is now. The flesh still persecutes the Spirit. Um, so you kind of see what the apostle is doing there, right? With the allegorical interpretation of, uh, of Sarah and Hagar. Uh, any questions on that one before we get to his sacrifice, which is one of the best? Pretty good. I love that as a foreshadow of the birth of Christ. I think also of the birth of, uh, the birth of, uh, of, of uh, uh, Samuel. Hannah, right? Hannah's praying. She's not able to have a son. Then Eli comes, and anyway, he, the Lord answers his prayer. She's given Samuel, and then she sings her song um, about the Lord answering her prayers. Read that, and then read Mary's song after she was told she's going to have Jesus. They're virtually the same song what Hannah said, what Jesus said. Samuel's also a type of Christ. By that, also Noah is in his miraculous birth, and on and on. There's all sorts of ones that all lead up to the virgin birth, all foreshadow it. But anyway, we start with his birth. And we'll end with his, uh, well, his, the sacrifice, which comes toward the end of, well, I guess the middle of his life, but it culminates in this sacrifice. Um, and the typological connection here is so strong that virtually no one denies it. So look what the uh, author of Hebrews says, chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he received the promises and he who had received the promises was offering up his, holy, his only begotten son. Notice the language. Who else has an only begotten son? Um, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendant shall be called. And then he said, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, for which he also received him back as a type. Right? So he got after, you know, the, the, the sacrifice that didn't go through, he received him back. And he said, as a type. Literally translated, if you look, there should be a footnote in your Bible on that passage that says, as a parable, right? And what do we know parables to to do? They're saying one thing, but they're communicating another. So he says, Isaac's sacrifice and his reception back is a parable. So it's a story that means to tell something else. And of course, it's a story identified here about Jesus's resurrection. Isaac is given back. The father spared not his only begotten son and received him back in the resurrection for our salvation. And of course, that means that the sacrifice of Isaac, not just receiving him back, but the sacrifice is also a type of the cross. Look at this wonderful quote from John Christosom in his sermon on this passage. He says, all these things were types of the cross. That is why Christ said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. How did he see it? Considering that he was born so many years before in type and in shadow. A lamb was offered for Isaac and a spiritual lamb was offered for the world. The reality had to be depicted beforehand in type. Consider, I beg you, to what extent everything had to be told in advance. In both instances, we have an only son. In both instances, only one who is greatly loved. The first was offered as a victim by his father, so the latter offered by the father. The type carries us a long way, but how much further does the reality go, right? So you see shadows and reality. But Isaac wasn't sacrificed, right? Abraham lifted up his hand to finish the deed, and God stopped him. Literally, an angel stopped him, and he turned, what? And there was a ram caught in the thicket that was offered in the place of Isaac, right? It was in his place. And the church fathers, now, this is the one area where I'll agree sometimes it feels a a little, maybe we're going too far, but I want to show you what they at least thought. Um, they thought that the ram was also a type of Christ. Um, so it's a double typology. Isaac is a type of Christ, um, and so is the ram. Um, and the church fathers said that the the two types, or the two, the Isaac and the ram, were the two natures of Christ. So this comes from t- t- Tertullian. So we have his divine sonship on one hand and his human servitude on the other. He says, it is not easy to see how this, is rather, is it not easy to see how this applies to Isaac, who was not sacrificed, and to the ram who was. Christ is the word of God, but the word made flesh. There is in Christ something which comes from above, and something which took the form of human nature. Christ did indeed suffer, but in the flesh. He endured death, but the ram is a type of his flesh. Isaac is a type of the word who dwells in immortality. He is both the victim and the one who offers. So, again, we might not want to put that much weight on Tertullian's interpretation, but I do think there's something suggestive about the ram, right? I think maybe Augustine had a better um, interpretation. He related the, the ram stuck in the thicket, literally a bush, right, caught by its horns. He, in his sermons, related that to the crown of thorns placed on Jesus's head. Now, regardless if we don't want to do that sort of typological uh reading into the very details, um, man, I just think the image of a ram caught in the thicket trapped um, in, you know, the, 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 the sorry, the, uh, the, the, the weeds that spring up from the cursed earth um, speaks very vividly in one way or another to Christ as the one who, who, who bears our sin and who suffers on our behalf. So any questions about the Isaac typology? Mike. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, so why not the Ram? Okay, yeah, If you, will, I'm, I'm uncomfortable going there. Um, I feel like I'm uh, probably a little more comfortable than most, but I just wanted to hedge a little bit because even I can kind of, I'm like, eh, maybe not. Um, but yes, I agree. Um, I hope in maybe the next couple of years to do a series on Leviticus and to do that kind of typological reading. done. Yeah. Mount Moriah,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. it's, amazing. it's amazing. Yeah, and and uh, and Isaac, he he carries the wood. He throws it on his back as they go up to the mountain. Um, I forget the actual quotation, but Isaac carries the wood. Right, and Christ carrying his cross to the place of the skull. Um, there are certain elements where it comes through in such a way that it's it's so. Um, Kind of eerie and uncanny how how much it was prefigured, um, any other questions about the Isaac typology? Awesome, awesome, okay, so then we can go to other ones uh we'll have to bypass for time's sake let's see where we're at yeah we're going to have to be quick here, so i'll fly through this next one. Um, the birth of Jacob and Esau, Esau selling his birthright um, jacob's ladder, right? what does Christ say when um, Philip's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. And then he says, he freaks out, and he says, you're the king. And he says, you're going to see greater things than these, and you'll see heaven open up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A clear reference to Jacob's ladder, where the angels are coming down from heaven. Um, What about about Joseph's betrayal and exaltation, right? I mean, that story, if any, in the Old Testament— Read so clearly like Christ. He's sold for silver, just like Christ is. He's thrown into the pit, and then he's raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh. Christ is raised up to the right hand of God. And then that leads us all the way through Genesis, right? We're done. I said an Old Testament survey, but here we are, not even out of Genesis. Um, and so we'll wrap up with Exodus. And the reason I wanted to take it slow through here is because these are the major ones, and I think if you get these, the, the handle on these major events, the... Um, the minor details are easier to read anyway. This last one, the Exodus typology, is the most profuse in all the scriptures. This is everywhere. So Exodus is all over the New Testament. So we have to just kind of take a few snippets of it. So first consider Jesus' life, right, which plays out his very uh, beginning all the way to his baptism. It plays out like uh, a blow-by-blow event, uh, account rather, of the Exodus events um, so Jesus, his baptism uh, corresponds uh, to the Red Sea crossing. So we'll see this a, a little bit later. Um, but then immediately what happens? Jesus is led into the wilderness um, to be tempted. Um, and he's there for 40 days, right? How long was Israel in the wilderness? Uh, were they, after crossed the Red Sea, they were there for what? Would did you say, time? 40 years. That's right. And um, it was in the wilderness that Israel went through these various trials um, this is Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. They didn't keep his commandments. Um, he humbled you and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that precedes the mouth of the Lord. So this passage strongly, explicitly prefigures the temptation accounts, where what does Jesus do? He quotes from these very words, right? He's tempted 40 days, like the 40 years, and he says he says to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes from this very passage. So Jesus was tempted to create, you know, on and on, all the associations go. And presented to us is a theological truth, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He takes on their vocation, what they were supposed to be what they failed to be, Jesus will be. Um, Not to destroy the Mosaic law, but to fulfill it. And then after that, uh, what does Jesus do? He goes to the mountain, um, uh, the mountain uh, where he gives the Sermon on the Mount, um, and he's the lawgiver, right, where he takes the Torah that was given to Moses and Israel, and he uh, reinterprets it, or properly interprets it in the right way. Remember the prophet that we talked about a couple weeks back. He's the prophet that Moses talked about, one like me whom you should listen to. Um, And there's other ones, right? Of course, Jesus uh, flees Herod, and he goes to Egypt. It's an inverse of that typology, right? Um, Pharaoh is not in Egypt, he's in Israel. And rather than fleeing away from Egypt, he flees to Egypt and then comes back. So it's that same typology, but reversed. Elsewhere... Um, Think of Jesus' death and and resurrection. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it's called an exodus. So Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about, um, our translations say departure, but it's literally the same word, the exodus that he was about to accomplish. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus is our Passover. Through him, death passes over us as we flee safely away from our enemy. So the entire exodus event, from Israel's slavery in Egypt to the conquest of the Promised Land, becomes um, a figure of the salvation brought about by Christ. And so, look, we've already treated this passage, so I'm going to just briefly move through it. Um, this is the one where the apostle takes the um, the, uh, the the water and that come from the rock, and the bread, the manna from heaven, and he relates them to. Um, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and he says that the rock was Christ, a very wild allegory that he jumps into there. Um, So on and on and on. And then, of course, our baptism, I think, is also a type of the Red Sea, right, where our enemy is drowned, so on and so forth, and we come through the waters onto the other side. Um, And so, okay, yeah, 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 we're getting through those. Um, Origin, I'll read this and then we'll wrap up. He says, It is God's will that men should drink at this rock, speaking of Christ, and that they go forward and reach the inner mysteries. This rock gave water only when it is struck. And had the water and the blood not come forth from his side, we should have all suffered for thirst for the word of God. So he says, The water coming from the walk. He relates it to the very scriptures themselves. And so, anyway, um, then we can go from there and go on and on and on about Moses' staff, Moses himself. Moses has raised hands in battle, the rituals and the institutions of the law, the law itself, the feasts, the tabernacles, the ark, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple veil, the holy things of the tabernacle, and so on and so forth. They all point to Christ um, so vividly. Um, Or you could also add uh, the first priest, Aaron, the day of atonement, the year of jubilee, the wilderness generation, the bronze serpent, the zeal of Phineas. Um, And that only gets us, out of the Torah, we still have to add Joshua and his conquest of the promised Land, him and Jesus have the same name I mean you have to you can 't ask for anything more clear. Rahab and the fall of Jericho, Gideon, Samson, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, right um, the miraculous birth of Obed, um, then comes Samuel, the capture and return of the ark, David, the de- defeat of Goliath, the city of Jerusalem, the office of the king, Solomon the temple, Elijah the prophet, Elisha his protege, Hezekiah, Josiah. Uh, Cyrus, and so on and so forth. We haven't even talked about um, Job, the Psalms, the Proverbs, wisdom itself in the Proverbs, the Song of Songs, and then all the prophets. So I think if you can put it all together, you find that most of the Old Testament is already typologically done for you. And so even if we stuck to that, I, I'm, I'm game with it. So what we want to do to end now um, and then I'll open it up. Actually, I'll just pray, and if we want to talk, we can do that on our own. Um, to end this, I want to go to the Psalms, and I want to show you how the New Testament prefigures Jesus in the Psalms. And I want to end there because I think it's the most devotional, and I hope it'll make the Psalms that much more precious to you. So let me close in prayer. and.